The Going Viral podcast from HealthEd shares the latest information on COVID-19 from authoritative voices and leading experts. You can find all episodes at healthed.com.au or if you're a registered health professional, you can listen on the HealthEd app as well as access many educational resources to support your professional development and practice. HealthEd's face-to-face seminars are starting up again in 2022. And we hope that you will be able to join us for a day of high quality learning with a lineup of great speakers and important topics in women's and children's health. I'll be chairing a number of these events and I look forward to seeing you there. Register at healthad.com.au. Hello and welcome to Health Ads Going Viral. I am Dr. David Lim. It is Thursday, the 16th of June. Dr. Gary Groman discusses why we should be transitioning our patients to Novavax and protein-based vaccines and away from mRNA for both safety and efficacy reasons. He mentions the need to take monkeypox seriously and why we should educate high-risk patients regarding the diagnosis of monkeypox and to keep up all personal hygiene measures as multiple viruses are making an appearance. Dr. Groman, tell us about yourself. Thanks very much for the invitation, David, again to speak. Um, I uh, have recently worked for the World Health Organization consulting on influenza. Prior to that, with the TGA for 17 years, Uh, in the regulation of the vaccine area. And I'm currently also a director of the Immunisation Coalition in Australia, which, as you know, is a group that promotes vaccines in Australia uh, that are safe and efficacious. Gary, what are the major developments in the vaccine stage, particularly with regard to COVID? Yes, uh, I think with regard to COVID, not a lot. Uh, seems to have advanced in the last few months, uh, except that Novavax, of course, is on the scene. And I think we spoke about that last time. It was about to become available. Now it is available as a two-dose regimen for those that are 18 and over, and we're awaiting other studies, and we are expecting uh, that vaccine to also be approved by TGA and Atagi uh, for a, a younger age group. It's probably going to be 12 to 18 and maybe lower just have to await the data. So this gives us um, a third type of vaccine, uh, protein vaccine, uh, which has a very good safety profile, as we know, and excellent against more severe outcomes. Mm -hmm. Still are mainly using, as you know, the mRNA vaccine, AstraZeneca viral vector vaccine is also still available uh, as a booster for those who cannot get the mRNA. And as we know, we do have potentially Uh, some side effects from the mRNA vaccine, as well as uh, the AstraZeneca vaccine. And although they're very, very low risk, they uh, certainly exist. There's uh, no question about that. Which ones are you particularly referring to, Gary? The ones that are more of concern? Uh, Well, the Pfizer and the the, 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 uh, Pfizer and Moderna mRNA vaccine clearly have a myocarditis risk for people under the age of 40. It's it's really hard to predict what that risk will be because it depends on the person's health condition and 
and some other factors, but it looks like around about one in 100,000 do get a myocarditis. This, of course, is treatable, particularly in a place like Australia. Now, I know there are numbers out there that are going to say one in 50,000 or one in 20,000, but my assessment of the data anyway is that the risk uh, is certainly not zero, but it's, it, it's around about one in 100,000. Uh, and that appears to be what the data is saying around the world. Mm -hmm. to the AstraZeneca vaccine, it's probably around the same. Again, you'll find other numbers, one in 50,000, one in 30,000. It does depend on the age group, and it does seem to be a much higher risk in people under the age of 60, which uh, Atagi and other Australian experts picked up earlier. And, you know, the vaccine is still very good. It still works. It will protect you against the more severe outcomes. But there is a group of people, and we're not entirely sure why, uh, but there is a group of people um, where these blood clots do uh, seem to appear. Again, it's quite treatable. I think part of the problem early on with the AstraZeneca was that people just weren't aware enough or getting the message out about these blood clots uh, and to get them to hospital straight away for treatment. So nobody should really die from these vaccines, although occasionally we do seem to lose someone in Australia um, and perhaps more so around the world. And that's not ideal. As we all know, we don't make vaccines to have a death rate. We make vaccines to have no death rate. Uh, they go into healthy people. We don't want any severe adverse outcomes. And we're happy as a community to tolerate some severe reactions, but certainly not severe outcomes. Unfortunately, we do have some severe outcomes, be they rare, but they exist. Uh, and we've had to accept those in the face of a pandemic that may have killed thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people in Australia. And, and as we know, it's still, the virus itself is actually still killing between 40 and 50 people a day, um, albeit in the older demographic, the older age demographic. Uh, so this is what we're generally seeing around the world, although I have to say hats off to Australia. I think we certainly have the situation under control. We've opened up the economy and so on and so forth. And while there are still deaths every day and certainly many, many cases, thousands and thousands of them, it's something that was going to happen eventually anyway, I think. And um, it's something the community has now uh, decided to accept as long as we can protect those many groups that are immunocompromised or with cancer and so on uh, that need protection from a fourth dose. And at the moment, as you know, it's considered basically to be a three-dose vaccine. So we get primary and secondary and then get the first booster, as they call it. Uh, but it's basically a three-dose vaccine. And that's only recommended. Three doses is recommended for everyone. But the fourth dose, the dose, as you know, is not. So um, the fourth dose is only recommended to high-risk groups. It's not recommended for pregnant women or healthy people uh, between the ages of 16 and 64. It can be recommended for older people, particularly if they have underlying conditions. But for those without underlying conditions, a fourth dose isn't even recommended by a target. A lot of issues you just brought up there, Gary. The first one is whilst low risk of complications with the mRNA vaccines, we're giving more and more of them three and four. What's your comment about how many mRNA vaccines a person can have that's question one. Question two is, what do you make of the Israeli study that showed increasing call-outs of ambulances for 
cardiac arrest and acute coronary syndromes in the 18 to 40-year-olds after the mRNA vaccines? It's always difficult to extrapolate data from one country to another. There are genetic and racial differences, as you know, and health differences between countries. But nevertheless, that data should not be ignored and nobody is ignoring it. But we don't see it replicated in Australia, for example. And we've had, gosh, how many million doses of mRNA vaccine? I don't know. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, there's been a massive rollout, um, certainly over 50 million, uh, if not more. I can't remember the exact figure now. Uh, But it's clear that we are not seeing that. So that's the first thing I'd say about it. Secondly, we need to then zero in, drill down and look at what's happening in Israel and whether that can be replicated elsewhere. Now, there are pockets uh, in other countries where this is also occurring, but there must be some other reason and, and that so far has not come to light. So I wouldn't be, I mean, I'm always concerned, but I wouldn't be overly fearful in any way of that data being extrapolated and repeating itself in Australia because we are not seeing that. So I think three doses appears to be safe for an mRNA vaccine. We will have one in 100,000 people under the age of 40 uh, come down with myocarditis. Uh, That's treatable. Uh, And for those that are concerned about that, we do have Novavax now, and there must be some pressure, I guess, on Atagi to recommend it as a booster. And it has for those who cannot have mRNA or AstraZeneca. So mRNA or AstraZeneca are still preferred by Atagi according to their website and their statements, uh, which is interesting, but we do have Novavax that doesn't have any of these side effects. And um, I think we need, as we, are, as we slowly and surreptitiously moved away from uh, the uh, viral vector vaccines because of potential issues with blood clots, and uh, then we adopted mRNA. Now I think we need to slowly also move away from mRNA, and it will be a brave step, and move into protein vaccines. Mm-hmm. These are safer, these are more traditional. We have a long history of data on them, on ver- uh, using various vaccines. The Novavax platform is used for influenza vaccine, and there are other groups that have done the same. We have long safety data, and it's considered to be extraordinarily safe. You never know in uh, virology uh, or vaccinology if something will pop up. Uh, That's why we need real-world data, and we are collecting that. Remember, all this data is done on 30, 40, 50,000 people for the Phase 3 clinical trial. These are highly selected. These are very healthy. They don't have underlying issues and so on. But when we get into real-world data, it's everyone. And, you know, we're not selecting in real-world data in the, same way, uh, in the same way as we do for a phase three clinical trial. So it's everyone and anyone, different genetic backgrounds, uh, different socioeconomic status, different lifestyles, and uh, different underlying conditions, or potentially with underlying conditions. And that's, and that's when we start seeing the real data. So even though our phase three data showed a 92% protection or more, depending on the vaccine against severe outcomes, real-world data is showing us about 70%. So and that doesn't surprise anyone. And 70% is still very, very good. It's kept our hospital system clear. And it's also allowed us slowly over a couple of years to open up the economy to more of a normality that it used to be. Gary, I just would like to ask you how you think the conversation in the GP consulting room can go, um, A, 
for uh, the higher risk group looking at their second booster, their fourth shot. Uh, how do we discuss it with them? A, if they're healthy, and B, if they've got significant morbidity, including heart disease uh, or autoimmune disease. Well, I think it's clear, David, that the fourth shot should be given to any person, whether they're healthy or not, uh, who's got a, uh, an, an underlying condition uh, that will almost certainly, uh, you know, raise the probability of a severe outcome. Uh, so it would make sense to take a fourth dose for anyone with an underlying condition. It also makes sense for anyone in an institution of uh, any sort, particularly uh, people with Down syndrome or people in an institution for the aged. You know, this, this just makes sense. Also, people in communities um, uh, or groups of people with disabilities would also make sense. So, you know, we need to make sure that we get vaccines to those people. They are the priority groups in the sense that they are at the highest risk of the most severe outcome. Uh, and that's what we need to focus on now. I don't think we need to focus on healthy children and adults up to the age of 64 that have no underlying conditions. They can have their third dose and we leave it at that. And I think that's the what it is, the Atagi recommendation. There's no fourth dose recommended. It could be considered if people were traveling uh, as a fourth dose, uh, but again, uh, a difficult conversation because I, you know, we have no data on a fourth dose in, in a large number of healthy people. I mean, real world data and certainly no data in younger adults and children. And um, I, I know that everybody gets on the bandwagon and, you know, once they're child vaccinated and so on and so forth. But, you know, given that there's no burden of disease, I find it difficult as a virologist and someone uh, working in vaccines to justify it. Mm -hmm. Very difficult to justify vaccinating uh, children at all. It, it's just something that's run through social media and the uh, community and sadly into politics as well. Um, I think I'd be more concerned, and we can talk about it if you like, about monkeypox. Yes, uh, I'll, I'll get there. But I was really meaning uh, with the GP talking to those patients with older patients, high-risk patients, heart disease, how do we sway one from mRNA to asking for a Novavax because they have a choice if they, re if they reject the mRNA, I guess the only fourth shot they can have is a Novavax. So how much work should the GP put into discriminating our patients? Well, I think we need a target to support the GPs. You know, I, I think a target needs to review what it's written about uh, the Novavax protein vaccine and actually make it available as a third and fourth booster. And it hasn't done that yet, which I personally find really disappointing. And why, you know, we're wedded to the mRNA, I'm not sure. And we shouldn't be. We should move on from an inferior vaccine to a more superior one. The data is there both in the efficacy trials um, as well as some real-world data. There's no reason uh, once the data comes through, and, of course, TJ accepts that data and approves the vaccine, there's no reason at all why it shouldn't replace the mRNA vaccines. And we need to start thinking differently, not get caught up in groupthink and say, well, this is the only vaccine we can use. We yeah. did that with AstraZeneca, and we did it for months and months and months. Yeah. And then we switched to mRNA, which was a reasonable decision. And then we had the age groups, which is also a reasonable decision. Uh, and now we need to move on. Um, we've moved on, in fact, to mRNA as a booster. 
and left the AstraZeneca alone. And now we need to look to the future and move on to a better vaccine, again, a protein vaccine. Now, there will be newer mRNA, newer protein vaccines on the market that are taking longer to go through clinical trials because we're not really in an emergency situation anymore. So the regulators will uh, be careful and uh, more careful in, in assessing the data in the sense that they will require more information. So it will be more rigorous to get the vaccine registered and that can only be a good thing. But as these new second generation vaccines become available, some are mRNA, some are protein, uh, then what will happen is that, I hope, is that then they will replace other vaccines that are currently available. Uh, but at the moment, the best bet in my book anyway is uh, a Novavax protein vaccine from the point of view of safety and efficacy. But as I said, it's only available to the over 18s, not available as a booster unless there's a very good medical reason not to take um, the AstraZeneca or Pfizer Moderna. Uh, and you know there are safety issues or very bad reactions, then a Novavax can be taken. Uh, but I would hope from now on, uh, those that are getting primary and secondary doses would take a Novavax. And for those that need a booster uh, that are over 18, they could also get Novavax. And we'll just see how Atagi assesses the data and, and, and plays this situation. The following message is a community service announcement. I'm Professor Andrew Sindoni, cardiologist at Concord Hospital in Riot Hospital in Sydney. I'm talking to you today about the fact that we may be missing aortic stenosis in primary care. New prevalence data actually shows that many severe symptomatic people with aortic stenosis in Australia go undiagnosed or untreated. The prevalence of symptomatic severe aortic stenosis in Australia is about 60,510 people but only 7,073 of those with people with severe symptomatic aortic stenosis receive aortic valve replacement. Certain factors do increase the risk of developing aortic stenosis, and it's what we see every day. Advancing age, people over the age of 65, cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, cigarette smoking, and other conditions, chronic kidney disease, coronary artery disease. If we don't think about aortic stenosis, we're not gonna find it. So if someone reports these sorts of things, grab your stethoscope. Have a listen to their chest. Maybe you haven't listened to their chest for a long time or ever because they've you know, not come to you very often or they come with other reasons. This is a condition in which we can intervene. We can make a difference with surgical aortic valve replacement and nowadays with modern therapies with transcutaneous aortic valve implantation. This has now been extended to older people who previously would have been felt to be not suitable for surgery. You say, oh, that person's old, you know, they're not going to survive an operation. This is not a general anaesthetic operation necessarily. It's a procedure which is done under sedation, and local anesthetic in the femoral artery, and this can make a huge difference to symptoms and survival, keeping people out of hospital, and really make a difference to their quality of life. If you think someone has aortic stenosis when you listen to their heart, or if they have those symptoms of shortness of breath, fatigue, syncope, chest pain, if you listen to the heart and you hear a murmur, either refer them for an echocardiogram or send them to see their cardiologist. Listen, suspect, refer. Gary, I really appreciate your thought because I can just see how your thoughts moving away uh, to the different sorts of vaccines and I valued that discussion. Uh, you were going to talk to us about monkeypox. Yes, so monkeypox is the new virus on the scene. I mean, 
I think the first thing to say is we live in a zoonotic world. You know, we, we need to understand that our interaction with animals means that we will occasionally get zoonotic infection. Influenza A, type A, is a classic zoonotic infection. It's not a virus of human beings. Now, monkeypox is another one, as was smallpox and, and other pox viruses like cowpox, rabies virus. I mean, and there's a whole string that I won't go into, but, the, but monkeypox has been around for some time. Uh, we currently have uh, 584 confirmed cases of monkeypox in 24 countries. 106 of those are in the, U are in the UK and some 240 uh, outside Africa. So it's spreading and I, I think we need to be careful. We need to keep an eye on this and not just dismiss it. Uh, the World Health Organization a week ago said everything will be fine. There's no need to worry about monkeypox. 12 hours ago, it said it could be, it, it's a possible pandemic virus. Hmm. So things change. And if you look up the graphs in, um, in fact, I have the data in front of me, if you bear with me, that the rate has increased since May, early May, from basically zero outside of Africa mm -hmm. to well over 200. Now, all pandemics start this way. They, I'm not saying monkeypox will be a pandemic. It's a very different virus, not traditionally spread by the respiratory route, but mm -hmm. by touch and contact. And this is what's happening. So through touch and contact, as we see in Africa, particularly sexual contact, uh, close contact, uh, this virus will spread from one person to another. And unfortunately, it has seemed to have hit hard the uh, homosexual community in the UK more than any other community. And again, you know, warnings need to be put out. Information needs to be put out to make sure that all those communities are protected. So we need to be realistic about this virus. It's re-emerged from Africa. And although it's been endemic in Africa for a long time, it's always been contained there. And with travel uh, of both Africans and others to Africa, uh, to and from, uh, the virus has started to spread person to person. So there are, I think Spain has more than the UK. Spain has 138 cases at the moment. Uh, so this then is the first step in outbreak. And those, those outbreaks need to be controlled. And obviously information is the first thing. Now, fortunately, we do have vaccinia immune globulin for treatment. We do have smallpox vaccine if we need it, which will protect against monkeypox. We do have antivirals, uh, cytofovir, for example. We also have ST246. Some people might know that as uh, a ticovirumat. All these drugs uh, will protect against uh, monkeypox spreading and, cause, and disseminating disease. Now, the death rate is between 1% and 15% and mostly in children. So this is a very different scenario for us. So it can be passed on from adult to child. And we need to be very, very careful because the burden of disease and death rate uh, is, or more severe disease is going to be in children under the age of 15. And that's what we see in Africa. Now, I know that, again, got to be careful of extrapolating uh, data from one country to another and one socioeconomic group to another. Have to be extremely careful. But the data is out there and there's quite a lot of it now. And we've already uh, hit 584 cases. And that's since the beginning of May. It's now the 31st of May. So we've gone from basically zero to 584. 
are you really saying to us that it's not something that we can just dismiss because there is a lot of feeling out there that it's just another virus and not to worry about it. But what I'm hearing from you is a very clear word of caution. Uh, absolutely. I would not dismiss this virus. I think there's a very low probability of turning into a pandemic. But unfortunately, aeroplanes and general travel carry viruses. It's very simple. These viruses, whether you're talking about COVID influenza or monkeypox in this case, they travel because people travel and people carry them, either subclinically or clinically. Um, they may not realise that the rash on their hand or body is due to monkeypox. They might think of something else and not worry about it. Then they engage with families and other people, hugs and handshakes. Uh, if they engage in sexual activity and so on, uh, then the virus can easily spread on. So it won't spread as quickly as a respiratory virus. That is true. Uh, but it will spread from person to person. So we do need good hygiene always. We've spoken many times about that one. Never drop the ball on good hygiene, uh, no matter where you are. Uh, is really important. And then we need very good educational materials to get it out there to people right now, everyone. So fear doesn't creep in via social media and all those other spurious uh, forms of authority. Um, and, and we need to get that out. And we also need to get, we still need to have our gloves and our masks and we need to educate our border control. We need to make sure we know people are coming from and we need to ask the question, not have they been in contact with a COVID person, um, but do they have a skin rash? Where have they been? Uh, I, I think these questions are really important. That's how you control outbreaks. We're not in a pandemic stage or even epidemic stage now. We're in an outbreak stage. But that's the time when you act. Mm. That's the time when you act. Well, I'm going to put it into context now, Gary, of the fact that we've got a population absolutely exhausted with looking after ourselves and masking and washing our hands. We're <laughs> also telling them that at the moment they've got a flu epidemic. Uh, there's a respiratory syncytial virus outbreak. Uh, we've got monkeypox and we've got um, uh, COVID-19. I mean, how much can the community take before they start to tune out? Well, we've always had flu, we've always had RSV, and we've had COVID-19 now for two years, that's the new one. We've always had monkeypox around the world, we've always had Japanese encephalitis around the world, and we're noticing a lot more in Australia, and we need to as well. Uh, now, Japanese encephalitis has been nicely controlled. We're aware of it. There's a vaccine. We, we know it's about mosquito control and people control. I mean, that's, that's kind of an easy one in terms of pandemics and epidemics. Uh, but, I mean, we've also got norovirus spreading through the community as well. We don't worry too much about it because it's a 36 to 48-hour event and it might affect a whole family or a group of people, but then it disappears and it's not life-threatening, assuming there are oral rehydration salts and and people uh, can be hydrated or um, have fluid um, if they happen to end up in an in a, in emergency situation. Uh, so we're aware of all that, but we've always lived with these viruses and had them that, David. We're very sensitive to them now, though. Yet we are going to get more flu, and we've started early, and we will get a significant flu epidemic this year. There's no question in my mind, and I hope everyone gets their flu shots early. I know Department of Health says to get them later because of the September peak, but I would get them early for sure. Mm. Uh, there's RSV has uh, crept in, but it's always been around. Uh, we, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that uh, vaccines will be available to RSV in a year or two. There are certainly some good ones out there. We've also got more pneumococcal. 
Um, we've also got more meningococcal. We'll have COVID-19 for some time uh, and we will have better antiviral drugs. We've got two good antiviral drugs. There are more coming in. So we can be confident that COVID-19 can't be forgotten about because we have specific risk groups, particularly immunocompromised and the older person. We can't forget about it and we have to be extremely careful. We will always have zoonotic infections. And COVID-19 was one out of the box. It was extremely unpredictable coming from bats and so on. Uh, and, and we have to be more careful of the interaction between human and animal and what might happen. And uh, with new databases coming online and new systems of surveillance and so on, we can get on top of these things. Uh, but what we mustn't do is be complacent. I, I found it a bit difficult, I must say, when people said, oh, monkeypox, yeah, let's just dismiss that one. Everything will be okay. It's only going to affect a few groups of people and then disappear. Okay. And I'm thinking, well, I'm thinking, I think we should take strong or medium to strong precautions now, at least in terms of making the medical community aware, border okay. control, get educational materials out there. And much of that's happening, depending on what website you look at. But I see terrific information on the CDC and WHO websites, but we need more of that in Australia and elsewhere. There's good information coming through because it had to in the UK as well and Spain as well uh, because they've got hundreds of cases and, and communities need to be warned. Communities need to be warned where the monkeypox is and they need to be reminded of uh, excellent hygiene practices. And that's something we should never give up. It should be on the mind of, a, you know, from the age of five and up. It's really, it's really, really important. Otherwise, uh, viruses, bacteria and other organisms are spread all too easily from one person to another. I'm going to come back to a point you made much earlier in the sense that people are pretty much behaving in a um, situation where the economy is now blooming and blossoming and trades good everywhere. The question is, have we slipped into being a population that is now prepared to trade deaths and mobility of others for our own freedoms and lifestyle? Oh, there's no doubt some people certainly think like that. Uh, and it's an easy mode of thinking to slip into. I've got no doubt about that. And it's up to the medical community and aware people in general to make sure uh, that those that are vulnerable, particularly the elderly, are highly protected. Unfortunately, there are still outbreaks in nursing homes and okay. people are dying. Unfortunately, the immunocompromised group or people with underlying conditions are ending up in hospital and are dying. Uh, there's no doubt we need to get back to more normality uh, for our mental health and other reasons of general medical health. Uh, there's no question about that, but we still need to keep protecting those at risk. An easy way to do this is to wear a mask uh, when you're in, in an indoor area. And while people you know, would like to ditch that idea, it's actually a very good idea because if you're carrying virus asymptomatically in a closed situation like a train or a plant, then uh, it's, you will not pass it on to others. And unfortunately, these viruses can be carried asymptomatically, including monkeypox. Nearly all viruses are carried asymptomatically for a period of a few days before these symptoms appear. That's a common characteristic of viruses is in the prodromal uh, part of the disease before there is a clinical manifestation, you're excreting virus. 
whether it's in saliva or fecal material or whether it's in a body fluid of some other sort. A virus is there. It's only later on that the clinical manifestations come on board. I may have told you the story before, David. I hope you don't mind me relating it again. But back in 1984, I was invited to my very first virology congress and I was a keynote speaker. And the fellow looking after me in Japan, this conference was, took me on a bullet train from the airport into Tokyo, as you do. And I asked why this one lady in the back of the carriage, which was packed, was wearing a mask. You know what he said? He said, this is simply a matter of courtesy in Japan, that if you're feeling unwell or have a little headache or you're just feeling a little bit off or you have a sore throat, but you have to go somewhere or go to work, you just put on a mask. Then people, and it's purely a matter of courtesy. And I thought that was wonderful. Mm, mm. Imagine that, that you would have enough courtesy to not go out if you have a sore throat or to wear a mask if you have to go out and catch a train or go to work and so on. And and washing your hands, et cetera, et cetera. But I thought that was a much better attitude than the current attitude we have now. Oh, you have to wear a mask and then you do your best not to. You know, it's, <laughs> you know, I think it's a pity what, you know, the sort of attitudes that creep into society. But in Japanese society, it was simply a matter of common courtesy. And, of course, common courtesy is one of the many tenets of Japanese, of polite Japanese society. And I, I thought that was a wonderful thing. And I, I mentioned it at the keynote, uh, as a keynote speaker, how wonderful I thought that was. Uh, and this, you know, was really a very good way to assist um, and educate the community, but to assist uh, in the fight against epidemics and pandemics. Uh, so, you know, it's something I've practised ever since. If I'm not feeling well and have to go out, I'll just pop on a mask. And, of course, people tend to keep away from me, which is good. Gary, you've never stopped pushing that message, and I always appreciate hearing it again and again. I will ask you now, though, Gary, because you've taken us through quite a few points, what are your key messages to our listeners? We have to always emphasise hygiene. Uh, we have to be aware of ourselves as to our conditions and chat with the GP and, and you know, understand if my BMI is over 40 or under 16, I'm in a risk group. If I have a heart condition or diabetes, uh, that I'm in a risk group, etc. And really know your own health and, uh, and understand that, okay, I really do need that third dose or maybe even a fourth dose, depending. I think have confidence in the researchers. There are so many good researchers around Australia doing such wonderful things uh, that, I, I would expect the whole landscape to change rapidly in a year or two to have better vaccines and better approaches. We will beat COVID either through natural immunity, uh, vaccination or both. Uh, but I do think that our uh, people in risk groups uh, need greater care and we need to be more aware of the older person, for example. Education is so important and I think it really does start with children. And we really need to get good education materials, not only online, but into schools. So people understand the basics of infectious diseases. It used to be, I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit long in the tooth now, but it used to be when I grew up, I used to go and visit friends and they would often live on farms or have chickens in the backyard or whatever. And we as children would play with the ducks and the chooks and the pigeons and the geese whatever was there, uh, but always, you know, mum of the household would say, wash your hands before you walk into the house. And it's it sounds so obvious and simple, but do we do it? And have a look at, you know, I think just simply being self-aware 
and understanding our own hygiene practices and where they can be improved. It's a kind of a mindfulness that we need to inculcate into people from a very young age that you do wash your hands before you eat a meal, for example. That's almost gone out the window. But what you're saying to us is when you live in a world that's full of pathogens uh, that you can't escape, the one thing we can do is protect ourselves. All the time. And we can protect others as well. If we're aware enough and we're not well, then we either stay away from others or those at risk, or we simply wear a mask if we have to go out. Remember, a mask protects other people. A mask doesn't necessarily protect you so well, but it does protect other people. And, and that, I think, is the important point, because if you have that subclinical infection, you're excreting virus and saliva, there's a very low chance of you passing it into the atmosphere because you're breathing out into a, into a mask. Unfortunately, it doesn't necessarily go the other way. There's some protection from a mask and breathing air in, but not a great deal. Once again, Gary, I really appreciate your messages. And I think those messages regarding mon monkeypox and to be careful of it is really well taken. And I'm sure all of us will be identifying our high-risk patients and having those discussions with regards to vaccinations and personal hygiene. Yeah, look, I, uh, David, we need to be careful of any zoonotic disease. Some just come and go, but please be careful of any zoonotic disease. Follow the data and, and let's not let fear come in, particularly via social media, which patients read all the time. Don't let it come in through the media. Uh, and I would hope that GPs can be the central point and the colleges, of course, the various colleges of GPs, infectious diseases, pathology and so on, can have a much larger role to play when it comes to uh, controlling infectious disease. That's something we've sorely missed because uh, politics has taken over completely. And that I think has been very unfortunate in the last two years. And we need stronger statements and stronger leaders from people in those groups. I thank you once again for your time. Always great to talk to you, Gary. Thank you, David. Great talking to you as well. And I hope all that was useful. Take care. Just a quick reminder as we wrap up to encourage you to register for the next webcast where you can always catch a high quality lineup of speakers and topics that HealthEd has put together for you. HealthEd webcasts are carefully created to provide high quality video and audio so that you have the best possible learning experience. It's free, you get CPD points, and it's all delivered directly to the digital device of your choice, wherever you choose to be. Register now at healthad.com.au. You can claim RACGP CPD points for listening to this podcast using the self-claim option. Log into your account on the RACGP website, go to the CPD section and click on self-claim.